Would you stand then and we'll go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we stand in your presence because you are worthy of our respect. You are worthy of all honor, all praise, all worship from now into forevermore. God, you are worthy. And so we approach you in your throne room. We have been granted access. We just for a moment are just pause and are in awe of you. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you that even though we mess up and we mess up and we mess up, there's still a way for us to come into right relationship with you. Thank you, God. And Lord, we remember those among us who are grieving. I think about the Lillo family, especially Josh's daughters. God, please come near to them. May they recognize your hand in their lives. And Lord, we're just, we're thankful for the large things and the small things. We're thankful for a community that is close-knit. We're thankful for a community that many know you, but Lord, there are so many who do not know you. There are so many who are just hungry and they don't even know what they're hungry for, and so they try They try to satisfy that hunger with everything except the one thing that can, and that is you. God, we have so much work to be done in Bertha and Hewitt in this area. God, there is so much to be done. I pray that our church would be a city on a hill. And that the people of this church would be lighthouses showing people introducing people to you and guiding them to you. God, I know that there are people among us who need your healing touch. I think about Sandy Ashbow, and she's going through these radiation treatments, Lord. Would you please heal her? But Lord, I also know that Ken and Sandy, they recognize that even if, Lord, they're going to praise you no matter what. But God, if you want to do a miracle, who will give you the glory And we will point everything to you, God. We know that there are others who are recovering and working through surgeries that have happened. I think about Steve Roth and I think about, Lord, the folks who need your touch. I think about the Howers and Scotty and his recovery from back surgery. And God, just continue that healing process. I know, Lord, that there's COVID and some families in our church and and family and community. And Lord, I just pray that this would get get through and that people would be whole on the other side. Continue to lift up Dorothy Vogie's grandson, Andy. Patrick Picorni as he works through his cancer treatments. Lord, there's so much, so many people that need your touch. Lord, I pray for Camp Arrowhead. Chemicog has lost its president. God, I just pray that there would be a way forward and that 
God, Minnesota, as, as we work, Lord, to figure out what the next step is. Give us wisdom and guidance. And now, Lord, in all of these things, we just give you praise and honor and glory. And we pray in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So if my microphone gets crazy, it seems like it's doing something crazy this morning, I'll switch to the other one. Well, last week, we ended in Luke chapter 13, verse 9. And I told you uh, on a number of weeks ago that Luke is organized in a unique way compared to the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. And Luke is organized around the journey of Jesus in his ministry. And if you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we talked about this many weeks ago, that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And we know that starting there in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus began his journey toward Jerusalem. Now that journey, of course, is geographical. I mean, he was moving literally toward Jerusalem. But it, it, it meant much more than that. It wasn't just a journey toward Jerusalem like the whole point was just to get there. In fact, the journey toward Jerusalem was windy. Jesus went all over the place uh, in Israel on his way to Jerusalem. This idea of a journey toward Jerusalem was much more about and as that, put that verse back on the screen, would you, Heidi? You know, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven. In other words, the journey toward Jerusalem was thematic. It was, it was this grand journey toward what was there in Jerusalem. More than just a, a journey of getting from point A to point B. It was a journey toward the Passion Week. Luke is using, the way he structured his gospel, he's using Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem as a theme. And both Jesus and, of course, Luke know what awaits him in Jerusalem. Now, this literary feature in Luke that you will notice, uh, you're not going to notice it unless you're really paying attention and you really know the geography of the Holy Land. Most of us have not been to the Holy Land, a couple of us have, but most of us don't recognize the geographical signposts that Luke is putting in his story. Now, if you've got an NIV study Bible, um, or uh, other study Bibles have this feature too, you're going to notice something if you look at the outline of Luke. Luke, starting in verse 951, uh, Luke from 951 up until 1321, which is we just finished this section in 13. It tells all of the places that Jesus is going on his way to Jerusalem. And remember, um, there are regions of the Holy Land, just like there are regions here. And this, this section, 951 through 1321, Jesus is in the region of Judea. And he's in this region traveling around, making his way from village to village on his way to Jerusalem. 
Now, remember, Judea is like a region. So it's helpful to think of it like a county. So think of it like this. This will be helpful to you, I hope. Jesus has been traveling through Todd County. Okay? And on, in Todd County, he stopped in Hewitt. And then he stopped in Bertha. And then he stopped in Clarissa. And then he stopped in Browerville. Well, where's the next place he's going to stop? Long Prairie. Now, you just know that, right? You just know that that, that list of towns, it ends you in Long Prairie, the county seat, the, city, the place where the government seat is, right? You just know that. Now, Jesus has been traveling, and he's about to go to Long Prairie, and that's the next obvious place. But at Luke 13, 22, something happens. Jesus diverts from his journey to Long Prairie, and he goes into Ottertail County. Now, why you'd ever want to go to Ottertail County, I don't know. I mean, it's okay. But Jesus diverts to Ottertail County. In Luke chapter 13, verse 22, he's, he actually spends his time in Ottertail County all the way until chapter 19, verse 27. And when Jesus is in Ottertail County, he travels from village to village. In fact, Jesus goes to Battle Lake, and he, he goes to Vergus, and then he's in Henning for a while. And then Jesus spends a little bit of time in Parker's Prairie and Deer Creek, and he even goes to Vining. And, well, okay, so it wasn't Ottertail County. This is an analogy I'm using to help you, because the people that are in Israel, in, in Palestine, they know this area as well as we know Todd County and Ottertail County. So when I say he goes to Vining, you know what that means. Oh, he's over there, right? And when you think about Vining, you think about those weird statues. and you know. So you just, it just, it's just obvious to you. What I'm suggesting is that the, the audience of Luke knows these regions just as well as you know Todd County and Ottertail County. Now, the actual place that Jesus visits has a, a name. It's called um, Perea. Perea is the region east of the Jordan River. Now, Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem, but now he's gone from Judea to Perea. So there's a map here I want to show you. You can see on this map, this is the map of Palestine. You see way up in the north is Galilee, and then straight south of Galilee is Samaria, and south of Samaria is the region of Judea, and then south of that is Idumea. But you can see that to the east of Samaria and Judea is Perea. That, the, that's Todd County and Ottertail County. I mean, that's what that is. So when, when Luke is naming these, these villages that Jesus is going to, the people who hear this, they just know. They just know. So this section from chapters 13 to 19, Jesus he starts early in, in chapters 1 through 9, Jesus is in Galilee, and he kind of goes down into Samaria. But then at 9.51, he resolutely, resolutely starts heading for Jerusalem, and you see Jerusalem is in Judea. And then from chapters 9 until 13, he's in Judea, but then in chapter 13, he goes across the Jordan and spends his time in Perea, and he spends six chapters in Perea, visiting all kinds of villages in Perea on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's an interesting geography lesson, but 
you might be wondering, why are you telling me all of this geography? What does this have to do with my life? Well, probably not a lot, although it is helpful to know where Jesus is going. And the reason I'm telling you is because I'm about to do something different. We've been working our way for many weeks, for months, through Luke, verse by verse by verse. Well, we're not going to make it all the way. This is going to come as a shock to you. We're not going to make it all the way through six chapters of Luke by Easter. And in order for me to get all the way to, all the, way to the story of Passion Week in Luke, I got to get all the way to chapter 19 and we're only in 13. So here's what I'm going to do. That's not going to happen. I've decided that what we're going to do is Jesus' ministry in Perea, which is chapters 13 through 19, okay? That section of six chapters, I'm going to put on pause. And we are going to skip forward to chapter 19. Because if you look in your Bible to chapter 19, if you just have your Bible with you, you'll see that chapter 19, starting in verse 28, is the triumphal entry also known as Palm Sunday. Now, Easter's only six weeks away. So, I'm not going to be able to do Jesus' Perea ministry in six weeks and talk about Passion Week, which starts in, in chapter 19. So, what we're going to do is we're going to skip chapters 13 through 19, and we're going to start in chapter 19 right after the triumphal entry is where we're going to pick up the story. And for the next five Sundays, we are going to look at the Passion Week from chapters 19 to 24 in Luke. When Easter is done, we're going to come back to chapter 13 and we're going to work our way through 13 to 19. So we're going to be out of order a little bit, but I think it makes more sense as we lead into Easter that we're talking about the the Passion Week story in Luke chapter 19 through 24. So it's going to be out of order a little bit, and it's just the way that the calendar is lining up. All right. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we jump forward in the story of Luke, and we, as we look at your word today in Luke 19 and 20, it is our prayer that you would speak to us and that you would help us to fill in the gaps, Lord. We need you because we can't do this on our own. As, as we read scripture, we pray that you would help us interpret. It's your word, God. It's not ours. It's not our interpretation that matters. It's not what we think that matters, Lord. It's what you are telling us out of your word. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. So please turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 45. This verse 45 is what happens immediately after the triumphal entry. So this is the first thing that Jesus does when he enters Jerusalem, according to Luke. So here we go. Luke 19, 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Well, 
The first thing that happens when Jesus enters Jerusalem is a very famous story, isn't it? It's the story of Jesus flipping over. I saw it. I saw some of you just go, whoo. Jesus flipping over the tables. I, I want us to also see the, the picture of making a, I don't know how to make a whip. How do you, but Jesus made a whip and then was whipping people, right? So he's flipping tables, he's whipping people. Now I want you to notice, none of those details are in this story, but you knew them. You know them so well that you're making actions, right? But that's not, that's not what Luke has here. Luke, Luke does not have all of those details that are in the other stories. Now, this is a famous story. It is an important story. In fact, it's so important that it's in all four Gospels. It's in all four Gospels. You ready for a fun fact? Do you like fun facts? I used to do fun facts during the timeline, and that was the only time some of you were awake was the fun facts. I saw it. You think I can't see you, but I can see you. So, the fun fact about this story. All right. Oh, we got the thing. Look at that. It's a fun fact. Heidi, you're just on the ball. So, the synoptic gospels. Does anybody remember what the word synoptic means? Nope. I told you about a year ago. Synoptic. Look, the word synoptic, optic, that's your eyes. Okay, sin, S-Y-N, means similar or the same, okay? So, sin optic means viewed the same. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They view Jesus the same or from a very similar vantage point. That's the way you remember synoptic gospel. The three synoptic gospels have the story, the same story of Jesus coming in to the temple, and they all have this story happening the first thing that Jesus does when he enters Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. Jesus, the first thing he does after Palm Sunday, the, the palm branches, remember the Hosanna, we're gonna, you'll talk about that uh, in a few weeks. But the first thing that Jesus does after he enters is he goes to the temple, he gets mad, he drives out the, the merchants, he flips over their tables, Right? It's the first thing he does in the synoptic gospels. But in the gospel of John, the gospel of John is not one of the synoptic gospels. In the gospel of John, this story of Jesus entering the temple and cleansing the temple happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not the end. So in the synoptics, it happens at the last week, but in the gospel of John, it happens at the beginning. Well, how could this be? How could this be? Well, there are two options, and Christianity is not agreed on which option is right. So this is one of those times where we don't know which is the right answer. But here's the two options. Option number one is that Jesus actually did this twice. So in option number one, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, went to the temple and cleared the temple, and then at the end of his ministry, three years later, he comes into Jerusalem and he does it again. Now, the fun fact is, um, I think that there's good evidence for both of these, but the first, this first option, I think there's really good evidence because in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can see Jesus actually quotes the Old Testament. And he quotes two Old Testament passages. If you look in your Bible, you'll see that little note at the bottom. Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. 
And those two passages he quotes are full of meaning. Uh, and Jesus is, is very significantly saying those two passages in all three synoptic gospels. He quotes the same passage. But in John, it's a completely different Old Testament quotation. In John, he quotes Psalm 69.6. So, I think, if you're asking me, what is your opinion on this, your academic opinion based upon Scripture, I think that Jesus went to the temple twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. And the, the, the scriptural reason I think that, because my personal opinion doesn't matter, right? It's what does Scripture say? Scripturally, I see Jesus quoting two completely different Scriptures in the, from the Old Testament for a different purpose in both times. So it makes sense to me that Jesus did this twice. Now, there are others who argue, no, it's the same event, but John has just placed it literal, uh, literarily in a different spot because he's talking to a different audience. So that's the second option, that it's the same event that has just been recorded diff in different places in the Gospels for different reasons. Now, there's some problems with that. It sure makes it seem like it's being manipulated, doesn't it? I mean, can we trust historically when it, when it actually happened? Well, seems questionable. I mean, you can make an argument that if Jesus would have done this at the beginning of his ministry, why does everybody act like it's a surprise at the end? You see what I'm saying? That would, that would argue against that it's two different occasions. But Christians are divided on this. And quite frankly, you can go either way on this one, and you might be right. I don't know which one is for sure the right way. I do think that when it happened, or if it happened once or twice, does miss the point. What is the point? The point is not just about when did it happen in Jesus' ministry. What is the point? Why did Jesus do this? Well, there is no doubt that the leaders of the Jewish people were becoming more and more opposed to the ministry of Jesus. Luke has been careful to show us that Jesus has been questioned and has been in conflict with these leaders ever since his ministry began way back in Galilee, in Capernaum. The, the leaders of the Jewish people, do you remember? We studied way back in like Luke 4 that Pharisees from Jerusalem had come all the way up north to Galilee to see what all the fuss was about about Jesus. They have been in conflict with Jesus since the beginning, and that conflict has been escalating more and more and more. It's intensified as Jesus has journeyed toward Jerusalem, and now when he arrives in Jerusalem, it's at a fever pitch. By the way, do you remember the whole point of the Gospel of Luke? Because if we, are, if we remind ourselves of what Luke is trying to do, it will help us make sense of this story. Go all the way back to the first four verses of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I just wanted to remind you of this 
Because I wanted to remind you of the purpose of what Luke has been doing throughout this entire gospel. Luke is concerned about proving who Jesus is. In other words, what authority does Jesus possess? This is the big question. The big question of the entire gospel. Does Jesus have authority or not? And all throughout the gospel of Luke, Luke has been building this case as he follows Jesus around the nation, as he follows Jesus on his way toward Jerusalem. Does Jesus have authority or not? Yes or no? And in fact, this entire journey for 10 chapters, from chapter 9 all the way to 19, Jesus has been building this case, this case for his authority. And now finally, the question comes into focus. Jesus shuts down the temple merchants and it begs the question, does he have the authority to do that? Does Jesus have the authority to walk into the temple and to say, you can't do that here? Well, I'm not the only one who was wondering that question. Look at the next verse. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Authority. Luke's gospel has been building to this encounter. The entire way that he structured this gospel is for this encounter to happen right here. Does Jesus have the authority to say and to do the things that he is saying and the things that he is doing? It seems to me the Jewish leaders certainly did not think he possessed that authority. And they finally ask him this most vital question. Verse 2, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? And it is the key question. Could I suggest to you, this might be the key question for everybody. This is the key question. This is the question that how you answer it unlocks everything or locks everything. That's what I mean by a key question. 
Because how you answer the authority of Jesus' question is going to either open or close everything to you, both in this life and in the life to come. And by the way, this is Jesus' big chance. This is his big chance to say, to say everything clearly. Do you know what Jesus could have said right here? I am the Messiah that was promised. Right here. This is where Jesus can say. He's in the temple courts. Everybody's around. This is where he can say, I am the son of David. This right here, this spot at the temple, Jesus could have said, I am the son of God. This spot right here, this is where Jesus could say, I am the second person of the Trinity. This spot right here, right here is when Jesus could say, I am God. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Verse 3, he replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? (laughs) Why didn't he just tell them the truth? Why this? Why, Jesus? Why do you respond to their question, a very direct question? Why do you not, why didn't he just tell them? When you're reading scripture and your mind explodes with something like this, pay attention. Because there's a reason why Jesus did it this way. And you need to find out why. The thing you should ask yourself when you read a scripture like this is, why in the world did Jesus do it that way? Ask. It's worth asking. Because there's a reason why Jesus didn't just say it. He answers a question with a question. Why? Why, Jesus? Why didn't you just say it? Well, because listen to the response of the leaders. Oh, by the way, fun fact number two. Fun fact number two. Did you see who the leaders are in this passage? Did you see that? The chief priests and the teachers of the law Together with the elders. Just a fun fact. Chief priests. That's the Sadducees. Teachers of the law. That's the Pharisees. And the elders. That's probably the Sanhedrin. The leadership council of the Jewish nation. Do you want to know something fun? They're enemies. Those three are, they don't like each other. They were enemies. But you know what they say, don't you? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Those three groups came together. They don't like each other, but they really all together don't like Jesus. So they've come together to get Jesus. All right. So their answer to Jesus' counter question reveals everything we need to know about why Jesus did not answer them directly. 
So look, look at verses 5 and 6. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Let's think this through just for a second. What does that response tell you about this group of leaders? What does that response tell you? Let me sum it up for you. You ready? They don't want the truth. They have no intention of finding out what the actual answer to the question is that they have asked. Remember their question? By what authority are you doing these things? Do you know what that says? They don't want the answer. They don't want the truth. So Jesus doesn't give it to them. Because they don't want the truth anyways. Do you see what they want? They just want Jesus to go away. They want to remain in authority because they like their authority. So they want Jesus out of town. It already said they're planning to kill him. They're not interested in the truth. So Jesus doesn't give them the truth. The leaders didn't want the answer to the question they asked. They just wanted to take Jesus down. So Jesus didn't give them either. In fact, what Jesus gave them was, is ridiculously brilliant. It's like Jesus is God or something. I mean, he, he had a ridiculously brilliant answer. Because they, had no, they didn't want the truth, Jesus presents them with a question that reveals the motives of their heart. That's a good strategy. And the motives of their heart, very clearly, are that they don't want to know if Jesus has authority or not, because they've already decided that he doesn't have authority. Does that sound like anybody you've ever talked to when you talk to things about Jesus? There are people that have already decided Jesus does not have authority. Before you start the conversation, I think it's helpful to recognize the way Jesus talked to them. He didn't just keep bashing his head against the wall, did he? He asked them a question that revealed the true condition of their heart. But then, as Jesus does so amazingly, Jesus tells a parable. And this parable, everything becomes clear. Look at starting in verse 9, and then we're almost done. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love, Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard 
to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be! Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to, to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. You see, the meaning of this parable is so plain to both the people and the Jewish leaders that they knew immediately that Jesus was talking about them. God was in the process of judging both Israel and her leaders for their unfaithfulness. Jesus just said to them, I am the son that the master has sent. And you have already beaten, treated shamefully, and wounded those that the master has already sent. And now the son is here. And you're going to kill me. And God will destroy you for it. The meaning of this parable is not hidden. The meaning of this parable was recognized immediately by the Jewish leaders. This is not a secret. So by the way, Jesus did answer their question directly in a parable. After first showing that they didn't want the answer. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it's a good thing we're not part of the Jewish nation, isn't it? It's just a good thing that we're the Gentiles in this story, right? Do you know who we are? We are the, the tenants that the vineyard was given to because the original tenants were killed. <laughs> you recognize that that's who we are in this story. You know that the, the gospel of Luke to the Gentiles, Luke is saying to the Gentiles, God has given you the vineyard because the ones he gave it to originally failed. I guess we're free and clear then, aren't we? Don't you think? We're free and clear, Gentiles. We're the Christians. We're the church that have, have inherited the vineyard. And now the last thing I want to say to you, <laughs> I hope you'll find interesting. We've never gone through Romans all the way together because Romans is very complicated. But I want to show you something that is so interesting. The Apostle Paul, just like Paul Harvey, gives us the rest of the story. The Apostle Paul picks up this very section of Luke and gives us the rest of the story for the Gentile church. Look at Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11. This is the rest of the story. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. This is Paul picking up where Jesus left off. Again, I ask, 
Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Now, Paul is talking about the nation of Israel. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater the riches will be will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. Now, I'm going to pause here. This is Paul saying that Israel was the original olive shoot, that God has ripped them off and has transplanted a wild olive shoot onto the root. Hey, Gentiles, that's us. We are the wild olive shoot that God has transplanted onto the root. The ones that were ripped off, that's Israel that rejected Jesus. This is the rest of the story. So now, but listen to the warning that Paul gives to us. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. Now, he's talking to the Gentiles, talking to us. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Just a third final fun fact for the day. I don't believe in eternal security. Do you? Just throwing that out there. Now consider the last section of Paul. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Do you believe in eternal security? Does that look like eternal security to you? Otherwise, you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Jewish people who have rejected Jesus as the Savior, if they come to belief in Jesus, will be grafted in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. 
How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? It's the rest of the story. This is the rest of the story from Jesus. Yes, we Gentiles have been allowed to be granted into the tree. But you had better, and I had better, persist in kindness. And all of this revolves around one word. Authority. Authority. Does Jesus have the authority to trim the olive tree or not? Does Jesus have the authority to say what ought to be happening at the temple or not? Does Jesus have the authority to say how we ought to respond politically today? Does Jesus have the authority in your life in every possible way or not? The question of Jesus' authority touches every part of our life. Every single part. Back to Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Our world is filled with people who either do not recognize that Jesus has authority or who act like he does but don't live like he does. They say Jesus has authority in their life, but they don't live their life like he actually does. So my ending question to you today, do you live as if Jesus has authority? Do the things that come out of your mouth, are they measured by the authority of Christ? There is no room in the authority of Jesus Christ for another authority to be there. Do you see that? And as we have been graciously grafted into God's family as Gentiles, we can just as easily be removed again. These are the warnings of Jesus. These are the blessings of recognizing and submitting to the authority of Jesus. We must and we can do this as a church. Would you pray with me? Lord God, Lord Jesus, it is my prayer that this church always lives with a recognition of your authority. We are to measure our lives against your authority, against what you tell us to do and to live and to, to think and to be. God, we are to be submissive. We are to recognize that you are the authority. It's not about individual rights. It's about individual submission to the authority of Christ in all things. May we be a light to this community, always, always pointing to you, our authority, Lord Jesus. Amen. And that is why they killed him. I'll see you next week.